All right, so we're starting a new class today for the next, uh, well, today in three more weeks. We're up on the board, you'll see the topics that we're going to walk through each week. So today we're going to talk about the polity of the PCA. Uh, this isn't just a new members class. It's also kind of like a refresher, if you will, for the denomination, who we are as a church, what we believe, how things function, all that sort of thing. So today we're talking about polity, and that's just kind of the structure, the government, how the PCA works. So we're just really going over some basics. Then next week we'll go over the PCA standards. Do you all know what the PCA standards are? Was our constitution, if you will? Yeah, the Westminster Confession, Westminster Standards, and the Book of Church Order, which is like our government rule book kind of thing. A lot of people like to say Bible when we ask that question, but why is the Bible not our Constitution? This is just a fun, confusing thing. What can you normally do to a Constitution? Change it. We cannot change Scripture, so the Bible is not our Constitution. It is the overruling thing in all things. It, it, everything else we have is under that. It cannot be changed. So our, our standards are actually not the Bible. The Bible's the chief uh, rule book, and everything else can be changed under that. Uh, and then we'll go over PCA distinctives the next week in week three, and that's uh, kind of the doctrines we hold, what makes us Presbyterian, that sort of thing. And then the last week, we'll just be going over the membership vows. And for anyone looking to join, it's vows that you're going to take to join the church. Uh, but for those of you who have been members for a long time, it's just a refresher on what the vows are, what have we vowed and promised to do for the church? Uh, so that'll be a good refresher to walk through those because they are actually very rich vows that we take to join the church. But that's the schedule for the coming weeks. But for now, uh, I do have handouts, actually, which I just now remembered. I'll break it into two groups here. And almost everything we're going to talk about is on the sheet. There are a few things that I thought of after I printed that off. That we'll go over. But first, just a, a brief history of the PCA while that's being passed out. Uh, the PCA came out of the PCUSA, which is the mainline Presbyterian church. And what happened in that church was over time, which is, is common in a lot of denominations in this country's history, over time, what happens to a lot of denominations as the world seeps into their thinking? They split, they veer, they compromise, they veer away from the truth. They start allowing more and more things that Scripture does not allow, that Scripture does not permit. And so really just liberalism, theological liberalism, likes to seep into the church. And so as early as the 20s and the 30s, you had a whole modernist controversy, which was a lot of liberalism seeping into the church, and you had men like Gresham Machen fighting against that in the Presbyterian church. Uh, and as early as 36, you had another major Presbyterian group split out of the PCUSA. And what we see is really there were some waves, a few waves of churches leaving the liberal mainline. And so the first was the Orthodox Presbyterian Church, the OPC. Y'all may be familiar with some of those churches. They started in 1936. So that was one of the first waves of leaving the mainline. And then the PCA was the next major wave. And in 73, is what you have in your hand out there. So in 1973, a bunch of churches left the PCUSA. They gathered together in Briarwood Church in Birmingham, Alabama, and they founded the PCA. Although the funny thing is they technically didn't found the PCA. They founded the National Presbyterian Church, and then the next year it was renamed to the PCA. So that's where we got Presbyterian Church in America. Uh, so I'm very quickly going over this history. Uh, but we split from the PCUSA over growing theological liberalism. That's what led to the formation of the PCA. And the, the, the primary liberalism at the time was the role of women, women ordination, uh, women's role in ministry. That's what really led to the split of the PCA, although there were other issues as well, um, not taking the Bible as truth or or wrong views on the atonement. There were a lot of other errors as well, but women's roles was one of the main ones at the time. And then the next major step in the PCA history was another group, uh, the Reformed Presbyterian Church, had joined with the, I can't remember the name of the synod, but once they joined with another group that had left the PCA, so these two other groups that split, 
they join, form the RPCES. Try saying that ten times fast, and I'm not even going to bother telling you what it stands for because it takes too long. Uh, they join, and then they merged with the PCA in 1982, and that was a huge group that joined with our denomination. So we split, it started growing, and then we had a huge influx by joining with this other group. If I remember right, that's also what brought in some of our uh, denominational um, assets that we have. Like, I'm pretty sure that was when Covenant College came in. Someone else remembers that. They can help me out on that. But um, That is a very brief history, and ever since the PCA has just been growing, it's now one of the largest Reformed uh, churches in the country. So any questions about my very, very quick overview of history? <laughs> The OPC. So, yeah, there's there's really a spectrum of belief even in in every circle. There's a spectrum, right, of where you fall. And so the OPC, they're going to hold to some more conservative views than we have on some points. And, and I don't mean conservatives, and they're more biblical than we are. That's not what I mean by that. But they think some different things. So they are closer to Psalms only a lot of the time. Uh, their view on what women can do in the church tends to be, a little bit more stringent than where we are. Uh, I can't remember the other issues, but those are some major ones. Um, and so uh, at the time that the, those churches that formed the PCA left, they felt the best thing to do was to start a new denomination. And so later on in 83 or 81, sorry, what was it? Okay, the EPC is a little bit more liberal theologically, if you will, than us, and especially in their view on women's roles. They didn't leave till 1981. So a lot of the churches that left later, they left later because they're trying to reform the PCUS church and keep it from going off the rails. So a lot of people are trying to stick it out and keep fighting and see if they can turn the denomination around. But those ones that stayed the longest were typically the ones that were also a little more right or uh, sorry, left leaning of where we are now. That makes sense. I might have jumbled that a little bit. But so there is a spectrum. So if you if you just want to look at us, the OPC and the EPC, the OPC is a little more more right than us. We're in the middle, and then EPC is a little bit more liberal than us. Um, but they're faithful denominations. They just have some small differences than us. Um, all right. Any more questions on quick lightning overview of the PCA? Before we get into the fun stuff. All right, well, let's get into the fun stuff then. So first, let's look at our motto. That's what you think of with fun stuff, right? Uh, so you all have that printed out there. So it's really in three parts. Uh, faithful to the scriptures, true to the reformed faith, and obedient to the Great Commission. And there you also see our priority list with those three statements. Because the first statement is faithful to the scriptures. That is the number one rule. And that's the reason... The PCA left the PCUS church in the first place as they were no longer being faithful to the scriptures. And so the PCA focus is we do what we believe the scripture says. Um, our understanding of the scripture, that's what we follow, that's what we believe, and that's what we hold to, even when it's unpopular, even when it doesn't match culture. So that's the number one rule. And then, of course, second is the obedient, or uh, excuse me, true to the reformed faith. And so not only do we hold to Scripture, but we hold to a Reformed view of the Scriptures. When we get into the distinctives week, week three, we'll talk more about what some of those distinctives are about, well, what does it mean to hold to a Reformed view of the faith? Uh, and we believe that to be the most biblical view. That's why we hold that view. Anyway, uh, so that's the second part. But then what's the third part of the motto? Right, so what does it mean to be obedient to the Great Commission? Where should your focus be if you are obedient to the Great Commission? Evangelism and missions. And the PCA sends out a lot of missionaries throughout the world. Uh, they are very focused on church planning. They're very focused on college ministries. And we'll talk more about that in a little bit when we talk about our various uh, committees and groups. Uh, but that's something the PCA takes very seriously is we are obedient to the Great Commission and that we are seeking to spread the gospel, to grow the church, and to plant more churches. Uh, and we have many avenues to do that with. Uh, that's something the PCA does very well. 
And sometimes if, you're, if your focus is down here only at the individual church level, it can be easy to miss that. But we are a very good sending denomination. Uh, that's something that's very highly focused on at every general assembly, uh, at our presbytery functions, um, and our individual churches in supporting and sending out missionaries. All right, any questions about the motto? There will be a test on that later. No. All right, let's talk about ordained church officers under PCA polity. So, again, polity just means government structure or, or your normal uh, rules of operation, if you will, how you're organized. That's all polity means. So how in the Presbyterian, Presbyterian church in America, how are they organized? What's the structure? What does it look like? First off, you have to have ordained church officers. So go to Acts chapter 6. And we'll look at the first seven verses once you're there. All right, so Acts chapter 6, verses 1 through 7. Now, in these days, when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews, because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. All right, so there's a problem right off the bat in verse 1. What's the problem? Right, there are widows being neglected. Uh, the Jewish, or the Hebrew widows, are being neglected in the daily distribution to provide for needs. And so there's this argument that arises. Well, what's the solution going to be? All right, verse 2 and on. And the twelve, meaning the apostles, summoned the full number of the disciples and said, It is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. And from there, what was the apostles' primary role at this point? Yeah, they're preaching. They're teaching. That's their role. They are looking over the church. And so their solution, uh, therefore, brothers, verse 3, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. So their idea is to set apart a whole group to serve this purpose, to serve tables, to serve the widows, to make sure that nobody's neglected in the, in the serving of the church. And that way, in verse 4, we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. Really what we see here is the elder office and the deacon office. Uh, verse 5, and what they said pleased the whole gathering. And they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip and Prochorus and Nicanor and Timon and Parmenas and Nicholas, a proselyte of Antioch. These they set before the apostles and they prayed and laid their hands on them. And the result of this electing, and notice that it was they told the disciples, they told the church to choose these men. Once they chose men who were full of the Spirit, then the leaders go, lay their hands on, and pray as a sign of passing on of the authority, the, the ordaining of authority to these men. And upon completing this election of the first deacons, the result in verse 7 is this. And the word of God continued to increase and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. So the way that the church ordained, passed on leadership, and took care of its people was the uh, fuel, if you will, the means by which many of the priests of the Jewish faith came to the Christian faith. They saw how the church cared for itself, how it organized itself, and something about that spoke to them. The Spirit used that in their lives to call them to the faith. So you see that even through setting up church officers, God's word can go forth. And so you see that really well in Acts 6. And this is specifically about deacons, but the principle is the same for elders. An ordained person is someone who is called to the ministry, uh, chosen and selected by the congregation, and then approved by the leaders of the church. And then through laying on of hands and prayer, we pass on that same authority of Christ to new leaders. That's how ordination works. Uh, any questions about that uh, more broad explanation of ordination? All right, very good. So we have two kinds of church officers. What are the two kinds of church officers? 
deacons and elders, right? We, we really only have two. There are two offices, one deacon, one elder. We just read about the establishment of the diaconate of the deacons in Acts chapter 6. And I use that word diaconate. So all the deacons together, there's to be a plurality of deacons when possible, meaning more than one. And they meet together as a body, as a board, is how our standards refers to it. And that's called the diaconate. So just like the session is all the elders together, the diaconate is all the deacons together. Now, what are the roles of the deacon? What is their duty? You can look at Acts 6. You can look at the paper or just what you know already. Yeah. Spoken by a, uh, how would you describe yourself there, Mike? Retired deacon? <laughs> yeah, so building budget benevolence, uh, other ways, mercy ministry, church property, budget, those are the kind of roles. But really, it's to serve. In Acts 6, their duty was to serve tables. That's how it's described. So theirs is a role not so much of authority so much as service. So there is authority uh, in the office as well. So this, the diaconate is to handle these things when there can be a diaconate, when you have enough deacons. Uh, but ultimately, they are subordinate to the session. They are under the, the authority of the elders. It's not you have a diaconate and a session, and then they have to butt heads till one wins out. It's that the session is the ruling body. The deacons work with the session, and not for the session, but kind of under the session. All right, does that all make sense? Elders, deacons, do you want to say anything about that? Correct anything I said wrong? That is a very uh, tricky question because they're not supposed to. <laughs> so rule number one is that they're not supposed to. Some churches have tried to get around that in the past, and they've gotten around it by trying to change the title, trying to say it's not an ordained position. Uh, we appointed them. Well, at the end of the day, you're doing the same thing. Uh, so they're not supposed to. Now, do some churches still try to do that? Yes, but it's the majority of churches in the PCA but there have been churches that have tried to get around it. Now, you can have assistant to the deacons, and that is not an ordained position. That is anybody who wants to help the diaconate, whether it be through visitations, helping care for people, um, making food and taking it to people. You can be an assistant to the deacon. And since that's not an ordained position, it carries no authority with it, men and women, that's open to everybody who wants to do it. Right, pretty much. Pretty much. And that's why some people, that's why a lot of churches don't do the assistance to the deacon. Uh, because, yeah, it's kind of implied in your vows anyway. Now, some take it as a way to train deacons before they're elected to office. And so that, that's a good way to look at it, too. Um, but, yeah, your membership vows kind of imply assistance to the deacon. Anyway, did that answer? Okay. All right. Well, the next uh, officer group is the elders. Now, elders get a little more compl complicated in one sense, because while there's only two types of church officers, there are two types of elders. So what are the two types of elders in the church? Right, teaching and ruling elders. So your pastor is the teaching elder. Pastors are teaching elders. Uh, ruling elders are your session. Uh, Mike, Bob, Keith. Uh, those are your ruling elders here, Pages, Elder Emeritus. Uh, and so what's the difference between the two? Right, duties. Um, yes, you're correct. That, that's getting into the polity church structure stuff. But yes, absolutely. So Bob and Mike, he's not here yet, but their membership is here at this church. My membership as a teaching elder is not here, it's at the presbytery. So all teaching elders are members of their presbytery, it's their church, uh, whereas ruling elders are actually members of the individual churches. And so it's just the difference in, in polity there. But yes, you're correct. Yes, so Hannah and the kids are members here, which is weird because I'm not, but they are. <laughs> but that's the way our polity works. I think it's mostly so that you're uh, a member with other peers, 
So it's me and the other pastors are members of this church. So we're all equal. We're all equally responsible to uh, shepherd one another and to walk with one another. Uh, Right. Right. And so my responsibility and service is to you. That's where all my vows are. But my membership is at the presbytery. And that's where my responsibilities to my fellow teaching elders lie. Did that, did that answer it? Okay. I'm sure there's a better thought-out answer than that, but that's, that's what I can answer right now. <laughs> All right, any other questions about that part? Okay, so really the difference between teaching elders and ruling elders just comes down to function and to, to gifting. Because not everybody is gifted in the same ways. Uh, so you have ruling elders that are gifted in teaching. Now, all of them are supposed to be able to teach. But some are more focused on being gifted in teaching, and some are more focused on being uh, shepherds or overseers or uh, rulers. And I'll explain that term in a second. Uh, Go to 1 Timothy 5, though, because I think that explains it well. And so we'll look at verse 17. And the point of looking at this is just to show that we do have two different types of elder, but it is one office. And again, they're just separated by by some function and by what kind of gifts they have. Uh, So if you look at verse 17, it says, Let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. So if it says especially those, what does that imply? Right, that there's some who aren't especially focused on those two things, that are focused on ruling or shepherding or uh, discipleship, other areas of the ministry. And so just practically, you have a distinction between ruling and teaching elders. And in the PCA, that's what uh, the founders were trying to do with our teaching and ruling elder. And it just follows the same old mainline PCUS format as well, teaching and ruling elders. Um, But the elders are tasked, whether teaching or ruling, with shepherding, with oversight, uh, and with spiritual rule. And so the idea is with oversight is that discipline and doctrine. Those are the two main things under oversight. Shepherding, is that pretty understood by everybody what the shepherding means? Protecting the people, guiding them in the truth, and, and leading them in the faith. That's what you want to see their faith growing. That's the point of shepherding. Oversight gets a little more complicated because it is discipline and doctrine. So you're trying to keep the doctrine pure. You're trying to keep Scripture. uh, You don't have to keep Scripture pure. That's not the right way to say it. You're trying to keep people's understanding of Scripture pure and keep them pointed back to Scripture again and again to keep the doctrine of the church holy, uh, to make the gospel the main thing, to, to teach people to live holy lives. Now, discipline. That has two aspects to it. Have I ever talked to you all about positive and negative discipline? Okay. Do you remember what it is? Not to put you on the spot or anything, but. Right. And so teaching right now, that's positive discipline. Uh, Walking through Bible studies, positive discipline. Preaching, positive discipline. Uh, So in that sense, discipline isn't always bad. Discipline is just guiding you in your walk with Christ. That's all discipline means. The negative discipline is what people normally think of, though, when they hear the word discipline. That's you have fallen into some sin or you're in unrepentant sin, and then the church has to step in and talk with you and confront you with your sin and call you to repentance. And then that's negative discipline, not because it's bad what they're doing, but because it's confronting something as opposed to positively just building And do you see the difference there between the positive and the negative, the two different types? Okay. When we get to vows on week four, that's a very important difference on one of the questions, is positive and negative. Uh, Both are very, very crucial for the church. Um, But your understanding of what positive discipline is, that it is just as important as negative discipline, that's pretty important (laughs) for how you interact with the church and how you go on in your Christian walk. 
All right, now spiritual rule. That was the last category of the three, shepherding, oversight, and then spiritual rule. Uh, what do I mean by spiritual rule? And it does connect with the discipline. Remember what happens in Matthew 16, 19 that I have referenced there. Flip there if you need to. So that's the gifting of spiritual rule to the leaders of the church, the apostles there, but which is passed on to the elders who lead the church thereafter. And the idea is that in discipline especially, the church has the keys of the kingdom. And that means we are, if you are faithfully following Christ and that's your profession of faith and you're living it out, uh, the gospel is open to you and the, key, the kingdom of heaven is open to you, Right. But if somebody falls into unrepentant sin or starts teaching outright heresy that contradicts the gospel, and we have to bring in discipline, and they refuse to listen to discipline again and again, to the point where we have to, what's the final step of church discipline? Do you remember? Excommunication. So if we get to that point where you have to excommunicate somebody, what the church is really saying is that the kingdom of God has been closed to you. That doesn't mean that doesn't prevent them from repenting and coming back to faith later. But at that point, we're saying that this person does not believe the gospel. They have rejected God, and therefore, they will not go to heaven unless they repent and come back. That's what that binding and loosing, that closing and opening means in Matthew 16, 19. That's a quick explanation, but did everybody follow that? Yes? Okay, good. All right, other questions about the officers in PCA polity? If you remember all the qualifications in the various passages that I have referenced there for requirements for being a deacon and an elder, what do all those requirements fall under? What do they fall under? What does Scripture require of you to be a church officer in the end? All the requirements listed in those passages, what are they about? Faithfulness? Yes. Belief, yeah, faithfulness, belief, and really character. There's one description of um, ability. Do you know what the one description of ability is between deacons and elders? Ability to teach. Everything else is about character. And so that's very important for thinking about officers. Is It's not about how good at this you are or that. It's are you a man of character? Um, do you hold to the faith? With a, with a clean conscience? And do you lead well in that? Um, or are you unsure about what you believe? Are you wishy-washy? Are you not trustworthy? All those things that can detract from uh, the fact that really the offices are offices of character. That's what the calling is. For elders and deacons, it's the same. It's about character. All right. All um, right. Well, if there's no other questions, we'll move on to the next section. I don't think there's anything else I want to say there. Yeah, okay. Well, that was if anybody had questions about just differences between, because uh, not every denomination sees the leaders of the church as the same thing. Like we, depending on what denomination you're in, you're in our, what we would call elder and deacon could get merged into other categories for other denominations. And so I don't know the ins and outs of every denomination to tell you for any given one. But I know typically in more Reformed Baptists or even just more normal Baptist circles, uh, what they would refer to as an elder would only be their pastors. And what they refer to as a deacon would be what we would call our ruling elders. And so there's some small differences there in terminology and function. Uh, so we have the split between teaching elder and ruling elder, but it's the same office. Whereas our deacons, that's an office of service. But some Baptist churches see deacon as more of a really taking on some of the elder roles of ruling over the church, and then the pastor does all the teaching and he's the elder. And so that's just one example I had of how some other denominations see that split, that division of duties 
and really just the terminology differently. Um, any, any other questions about that? No, and we'll get, we might hit on that when we get to the distinctives uh, week. Because, yeah, they, they, they hold to, and their view on covenant theology is different as well, which is really what leads to their different view of baptism, in, in my opinion at least. Um, yeah, all right, any other questions? All right, well, let's move on to the real fun stuff, church courts. Uh, turn to Titus 1, 5. All right, <clears throat> so Titus 1.5. So this is the Apostle Paul writing to Titus, and he says, This is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. So why is Titus in Crete? Why did Paul leave Titus or send Titus to Crete? To bring about order. And how is he going to bring about order? Appoint elders. And notice that word. Singular or plural? Plural. Appoint elders in every town. Not an elder. Not one man to rule. But to appoint a plurality, more than one, of ruling elders. Teaching elders. And so what you have there is really the establishment of the lowest court in the church. And I don't mean lowest is in the weakest or the least important. I mean just the lowest in terms of order of the PCA, which is the church session. So as far back as Titus 1.5, you see the establishment of elders to rule over the church and to guide the church. That's how order is created. Uh, have you all ever heard the phrase about Presbyterians, we do everything decently and what? Decently and in good order. So we're all about organization and keeping things neat and tidy as much as possible. Uh, sometimes we can take that too far. But normally, it's a very helpful thing. And so this is the lowest church court is the session. All right. Any questions about that? No, because then you wouldn't have a plurality, right? And so then the presbytery, which we'll get to in a second, the next level of the court, they would have to step in and provide a provisional session, I believe is the right language there, provisional session. Uh, so yeah, you need more than one, because if you have one man, well, really that's a dictatorship or despotism. Even if that one man leads well, it's open to uh, all kinds of abuse, and also you can't have a quorum, you can't hold a session. <laughs> There's a lot of issues. You can't have one man leading. But the next level up, and we'll talk more about how all these relate as we go, but the next level is the presbytery. So who makes up the presbytery? Right. So it's really all the sessions together make up the presbytery. Now, that doesn't mean everybody on a session can go to presbytery and vote. You have a limited number from each church who can actually have a vote. But everybody is invited to come who would like to. And so that's the regional uh, court. That's the next court up. So Western North Carolina, we're called Highlands Presbytery. And so that goes from, if you go east to Morganton at Faith Pres, that's the eastern limit. You go south towards Hendersonville, Brevard, and oh, what's the church out towards Rutherfordton a little bit? Grace something. Grace Blue Ridge. Okay, so out towards Grace Blue Ridge, and then west, all the way to the corner of the state in Murphy, and then west-north into Tennessee a little bit. And so this whole region is our presbytery. And all those churches, all the teaching elders, and we try to get as many ruling elders as we can to come, but it's, it's harder to get the ruling elders out there. Uh, we all gather together, and then we handle church business at the presbytery level. And as was stated earlier, that's where me as a teaching elder, that's where my membership is. That's my church that I'm a member of, is technically the presbytery. And so that is the next level. Uh, and then what's the final level? General Assembly. 
And I'm not going to write all that out because I'm lazy. So GA, General Assembly, that's our normal abbreviation anyway. Um, and really what we're doing at General Assembly, it very much is mirroring Acts 15. What happened in Acts 15? Testing your Bible knowledge here. Right, so it's the council. So it's all the leaders of the church coming together and saying, how do we address these various issues that we have? Uh, what's the normal mode of practice? What do we think about uh, circumcision and old feasts, uh, uh, foods, clean versus unclean? What do we think about all these things? And so really all we're doing is we're carrying that on with the highest level of our court as we meet together as a whole denomination to handle issues. And so what you have is... Highest court, middle court, lower court, and that doesn't mean importance. That's just the order of the courts. Uh, so our session meetings, we are governing this specific body. Then when we go to presbytery, it's all the people in this presbytery making decisions, uh, keeping each other accountable, uh, doing, we can even do church discipline at the presbytery level when needed, and unfortunately it is needed. Um, uh, normally it's more positive things. We're praying, we're talking about business. How can we... Uh, church plant, support RUF, support all the different missions of the church. And then the GA is just that national level, the whole denomination coming together, uh, passing overtures, uh, which is really just new laws, if you will, about how we operate, uh, what we believe, how we govern. Um, but also, again, the bigger focus is really on that last part of the PCA motto, being obedient to the Great Commission. When we meet at GA, the main thing we're trying to do is how do we keep promoting the growth and health of the church. How do we encourage missions? How do we encourage church planting? And that's where a lot of the rubber meets the road is at GA making those decisions. Uh, question about the three courts in general. Once a year, correct. Yeah, and so the PCA, the GA is the main body for that. Now, at the presbytery level, we're doing that, too, because as opportunities for a new church plant in the region come up, if we see a need for a new church plant, well, the presbytery is the one there. They're the main one responsible for actually implementing it. The General Assembly's job is to give the presbyteries what they need, so to speak, so they can go do that and to push them to help them drive forward. Bob, did you have a... Right. Right. And we can go to GA and be delegates at GA. So we would be the ones voting on that stuff, too. So everybody gets a, a say. Um, yeah, we'll talk about Book of Church order in the third week of the class. Uh, yes, and that's why I was saying there is a structure to the courts, and this is the highest court in which if something gets to that and they make a decision, that's it, unless the whole General Assembly, this is getting complicated, but votes to address it and overrule it, which I think is possible, but I don't know if that ever happens. Yeah, so just as an example, and hopefully this is nothing that would ever happen, but we make a decision as a session. Any of you as a member could file a complaint against the decision we made. I, I think it, I can't remember if it has to concern you or not, but you could file a complaint and you wouldn't, you would give it to us first and then we would have to address it. And if we decided, no, we don't want to deal with that, you can then take it to presbytery. And then if the presbytery either doesn't want to handle it or decides that you're wrong, you can appeal or complain again to GA, and you can go all the way up to the highest court, like Bob was saying. It's like our judicial system. These, that's why we call them courts. Is More often than not, we're handling things like just talking about the gospel and things like that, how to plant churches, how to do all this. Uh, but we do get cases that have to go up. or adding a change to the BCO, the Book of Church Order, which is just 
we think we should do it this way instead in the court because that will be smoother. So somebody writes up the uh, overture. Then it goes through the presbytery, and they approve it. Then they send it to GA. Then we all vote on it or vote it down. You understand? It's just a court structure. You don't have to know the ins and outs, uh, but that's how it works. Right. That is possible, yeah. Right, and that's the correct thing to do. Okay, well, this was wrong. We need to take it higher. And sometimes you don't always get the answer you want. They are fallible courts. Unlike the Acts 15 Jerusalem Council, this is not binding in the same way. It's not scripture, you know. Uh, It's just a court of men uh, who we hope are doing the right thing, but occasionally they make mistakes too. Yes, yes. Right. You're absolutely correct, and we'll talk about that in just a second. Uh, No, thank you for bringing it up. Uh, One thing I'll note first before I forget, when we left the PCA, there was a big problem with leaving the PCA in the 70s. And that was something that we have changed from the PCUSA to the PCA. In the PCUS, do you know who owned the church and the property? PCUSA, meaning if you wanted to leave the PCUSA, the PCUSA could keep your property. Um, There was a period of time where they decided to let churches leave and take their property with them. But technically, they own the property. And so for everybody else who wasn't in that window, who left before or after, they just lost everything. They lost their property. And so one major change in the reason compared to PCUSA or some Scottish Presbyterian, we're we're called a grassroots uh, body, a grassroots denomination, because the congregation owns the church, not the denomination. So this property cannot be taken away by the PCA. If the PCA went way liberal in 50 years and this church needed to leave, it would keep the property because it already owns it. So that was one major change. but also the session, it may be the lowest court, but it also has the most oversight over the church. It's The local session is the most important, and then you go up. And they're all important. Don't, don't mishear that. Uh, but anyway, there is an order all over the place. All right, now let's talk about the different committees for a minute. Uh, so there's some what are called permanent committees, meaning they're always meeting. Uh, I'm not going to tell you all of them because I, I don't think they're all helpful for you to know. But I'll list three big ones. Um, but talking about the Great Commission, obedient to the Great Commission, what are some committees that you know of in the PCA that are promoting that mission of the Great Commission? World Mission through who? What, what's one of the big groups? Mission to the World, MTW. That is our huge mission sending agency all over the world, MTW, missionaries everywhere. Uh, we give money to MTW. We support MTW missionaries. It is a great organization for the forwarding of the Great Commission. That is the primary way, really, that the PCA is building up the church globally. All right. Now, name another. MNA stands for Mission to North America. What does Mission to North America do? Right. So in North America, obviously, hence the name, right, they're focused on church planning, and then some of like the uh, native missionary fields, so like Scott Hill and Cherokee, that's gone back and forth under whether it's under MTW or MNA, the work itself. And I believe right now it's under MNA, even though Scott is with MTW, which is kind of confusing. But either way, this is basically the local mission, so to speak. This is world mission, so to speak. And they work together really well. All right, and then there's one more group that I'm putting under this missions, RUF. Thank you. What does RUF do? Yeah, it's, it's university students. So it's a whole new mission field on the college campus across the country uh, and actually outside of the country, too. There are campus ministers from the PCA, from RUF, who are out there preaching the gospel, calling students to faith and teaching them, discipling them, uh, 
leading many into ministry. Because many RUF people, especially who are converted in RUF or right before and come in and are fed by it, they become RUF interns and they often end up in seminary and become RUF campus ministers. So it's, it's, a, it's a very neat cycle that's been created there. Uh, all right, any questions about those three? And there are others, but those are three of the big missions-focused ones. I will say uh, we also have some other things that you'll know about, though. Uh, Ridge Haven, that's our big conference center for the denomination. We have Covenant College, uh, our Covenant Seminary. I feel like I'm missing one. Anyway, those are three big uh, assets we have to the denomination for training, for teaching, for uh, raising up new ministers. So any questions about any of that? No, it's not. It, it is Presbyterian, but I don't know if it's associated with one group or not. Bob or Mike, do you all know who Greenville, if they're associated with anyone else? I can't remember. Right. And I know they're not PCUS. Yeah, so if anything, it's probably OPC, but I, I don't know if they're technically affiliated or not. Yes, I think so, yeah. Yes, they were long. They weren't a split out of the PCUS. They were founded, I can't remember the year, but well before 1900. It's a very old denomination, 17-something. Uh, yeah, it was very early. I, I can't remember now. But uh, but they're a very interesting one. And one that's very small, it's very localized in part of North Carolina. I ran RTS when I was at a seminary there. There's a lot of ARP guys in that area, in the east a little bit and south into South Carolina. But beyond that, there's not a whole lot of ARP churches. But they were interesting because they went way left theologically. They were getting very liberal, uh, I think, in the 80s and 90s. And then Dr. Robert Kara, who's a, who's a professor and the dean at RTS Charlotte, or see the provost, and then he's the dean of all of RTS. Now I can't remember but any, his titles. He's got a lot of them. Uh, but he and some other men really fought hard to try to bring them back from liberalism to being biblically conservative and, and faithful. And by God's grace, it, it worked. It's God brought that denomination back from really what was the brink. They were basically right there with the main line or close to it. They were on the same track if they weren't there yet. Uh, and that's a rare case of a liberal denomination swinging and becoming very biblically conservative. And so it's really a very good little denomination. Um, I like the ARP a lot. Uh, but it's very localized. Uh, and so they don't have a lot of the same resources that, say, the PCA does. Just because we're a lot bigger, we have a lot more churches to pull from, and we're much more... Uh, not only national, but even going beyond to global than maybe ARP can do. Uh, anyway, that's my quick summary, but good denomination. If you're referring to missions, yeah, it's MTW. Um, international, I think they're still under RUF, but they might work with MTW on those. I'm not sure how that structure works out if anyone else knows yeah yeah i mean if you're a campus minister you're under ruf you might be working with mtw as well because they can work together it doesn't have to be one or the other but you're going to be under ruf primarily okay and that's where it gets complicated because if you're on the mission field away <laughs> which do you fall under uh but i don't have the answers for that one Right, right. And, yeah, and that's the case for a lot of our church plants are international churches and these major centers where people are rotating in and out. It's become a huge mission field for the PCA. Uh, Yeah. 
Gotcha. Sounds pretty cool. <laughs> right. Yeah, RUF has really exploded over the past 15, 20 years, I guess. It's in a lot of places. Right. Yeah. Because the culture is going to train them. And so are we going to counter that training and train them with the truth, or are we going to let the world train them? And same with our kids and schooling and all those tough decisions we've got to make. It's, it's how do we train our kids? And same is true in college. How do we train them? All right. Well, let's move on to the next page there because we're starting to run out of time here. But I think we can get through this last bit fairly quickly. Uh, so first, membership at FPC. Uh, these are membership requirements for the few of you who are looking at that. Uh, we don't require a test at the end of this. We don't require a whole lot. All we really need to see is we need to see a credible profession of faith that you believe the gospel, that you're trusting in Christ, that you're resting in Christ. That's what we need to see. And along with that, there's two other lesser things that just go along with that. Can you examine yourself for communion? Can you discern, as First uh, Corinthians 11 says, the body and the blood of Christ in communion? So if you can examine yourself, if you have a credible profession of faith, and if you're willing to take the vows that we'll go over in week four, then that's all we require for membership. So the process, in any, in any case, is training, which is this class, and then if you have any more questions, meeting with me or any of the ruling elders would be fine as well. If you haven't been baptized, it's baptism. Uh, and then we just need to meet. You need to meet with the session. Uh, we'll ask you some questions uh, just to see your uh, testimony, if you have a credible profession of faith. And if so, and you're willing to take the vows, you take the vows then, then you take the vows up front before the church because it's a public profession, and then you've joined the church. So it's a pretty simple process, and we're not looking for a doctorate or an MBA or anything like that, uh, thankfully. Uh, yeah. All right, any questions about that? Since most of you are members already, I'm guessing you all don't have any questions about that. All right. Well, in the few minutes we have left, let's talk about worship. Uh, I've got stuff about the atmosphere and stuff, which if we had time, I wanted to go through. But since we're a little short on time, what I would rather do is uh, talk about our philosophy of worship, the order of worship, really. So I don't know how many of you have grabbed a bulletin already. Have any of you grabbed a bulletin already? Okay. Well, I just wanted to, to talk about that for a few minutes. Uh, so there's different philosophies on how you go through a worship service. And for me, the, the one that I've been trained in, the one that I believe is the most... Uh, Effective, I'll say, is that the sermon is the logical center of the order. Not that it's actually in the middle of all this stuff, but that is the logical center because it's what you spend a good amount of time on. That's the major proclamation of the word. And so I think that everything needs to feed into that and flow with that logical center because there are other ways to do an order of worship. So when I put an order of worship together, I'm trying to focus on themes themes that are in the scripture passage that we're preaching on, and I want to connect those themes and flow them together. Now, sometimes that's easier said than done, but that's my goal, is to try to feed everything together to where if we're talking about uh, suffering in First Peter, um, we don't need to have a scripture reading talking about something completely different. If it can relate to that and build or help you understand something about the scripture passage, that's what I want the separate scripture reading to do. So I want everything to be an aid, a help to get you through and help you to understand the main points of the sermon passage better. Now, other methods are, are covenant renewal. So the sense that every time we're coming together, we're renewing the covenant. That, that's uh, the pastor I worked with in Waynesville. That was his view. It's a covenant renewal. So every time you come, you're confessing your sin. You're hearing the call to repent. Um, and so it just, he just kind of had a set routine of what you would do if it was a covenant renewal, and that's how he would organize it. Other people want to do a sequential thing where you open with a call to worship and a hymn, and then maybe you choose the book of Malachi, and you do your scripture reading every week going through a different portion of Malachi. And you might sing through the Psalter, start in Psalm 1 and go through. Each week you're doing a new psalm, which there are strengths to that, uh, but it can also be very disjointed in the order, and things aren't connecting, and you can have not conflicting themes uh, 
but themes that you wouldn't normally put together to help you understand something, right? And so I, I take the view of themes and the sermon being the logical center. Uh, any questions about that? There's a whole lot more I can say about my philosophy of worship, but uh, just a few final notes then in the time we have remaining here. And then I'll, I'll talk you through the Psalter in case you're confused about what we've been doing there. Uh, but worship is really a conversation. It's a conversation between God and his people. And when you have a conversation with God, God always gets the first word. And guess what else he also gets? He always gets the last word. And that's why, what do we start with? Even before prayer, a call to worship. And is the call to worship my words telling you all to worship and pay attention? No, it's a scripture passage saying, worship the Lord, rejoice, exalt in the Lord. So that's the call to worship. It is from the Lord to you. I'm just reading the passage, but God's the one who's calling you to worship. And what do we end with? The, the very last thing. Yeah, the benediction, the blessing of God on the people. So the first word and the last word. You come in with God's invitation. You go out with God's blessing. That's the, the framing of the worship service. And everything else in between is in the invocation. We're praying to the Lord for him to help us as we worship. We need his spirit to help us, to lift us up, to open up our hearts, to soften our hearts for the word. That's why we have an invocation. Uh, we sing songs because we're commanded to. We don't have time. But Ephesians 5.19, Colossians 3.16, it commands singing. Not only singing, but even singing psalms. That's why we're singing the Psalter and the hymn book. So psalms, hymns, spiritual songs. Uh, that's the three listed. And so we're talking back and forth. And God speaks to us through the word. We speak an affirmation of faith or confession of faith. And that's us together confessing what we believe about God. What we can what we believe about us based on the scripture. Uh, and that's not only uniting us together in our belief, but it's also uniting us to people who for generations behind us have believed the same thing and recited the same thing. So the Apostles' Creed, we're reciting something that's been recited for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years with other saints. So it's connecting us back in time to God's larger church, capital C church, instead of just our local church. It's keeping us grounded in our roots and our heritage in the faith. Um, and then, of course, the sermon is a logical centerpiece. Uh, we have the pastoral prayer where we lift up requests to God, where we uh, can confess sin to God. Um, sometimes we have a confession of faith. Sometimes we say the Lord's Prayer. Uh, I could go on, but just it's about that conversation back and forth and trying to have a balanced worship service. Any questions about any of that? Or why we do what we do? Or Right. 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 So, yeah, the regulative principle of worship. Uh, anyone wanted to try to explain that? Oh, don't make me do it. Okay. Well, the regulative principle of worship, depending on who you ask, sometimes you get two different answers, but essentially they're the same. We only do what Scripture tells us to do in worship. That's why we pray, preach the word, read the word, uh, sing the word. Um, and we come in with God's invitation, we go out with his blessing. That's the regulative principle. Sometimes people say we don't do what Scripture commands you not to do, which, of course, is also true, but that's broader. Uh, so the regulative principle more narrowly is we only worship in the way God has told us to worship. Now, just a theological question. Why might we follow that rule? Why might it be important to only worship in the way that God has told us to worship? Say that again. I don't know. <laughs> oh, oh, uh, Uzzah. Uzzah, yeah. Yeah, and then you've got Nadab and Abihu who were very similar. They offer unauthorized fire. What that means is they worship the way they wanted to worship. And as a result, they were struck down. So we worship a holy God. And so we come only at his invitation, and we worship him the way he has asked us to worship. Um, out of respect, out of honor, and out of he knows best. <laughs> and so we follow his commands and worship the way he tells us to worship. Right. Right. And yeah, when you, when you drop the regulative principle, it becomes very easy to, well, I feel 
use emotive language here. I feel that I should worship God in this way. And that's where you get some pretty wacky stuff coming into some services and places. Uh, and that's because when man decides how he wants to worship God, it becomes a real mess real quickly. And so we worship decently and in good order the way God has told us to. All right. I would love to keep going, but we are past time. Any final quick questions? If not, I will close this in prayer. Going once, twice, trip, you don't count. Three times. All right, let's close in prayer. Lord God, we do thank you for your church. We thank you that you have called us as an individual church, uh, but you have, you have not called us alone. You have called us as part of your greater church throughout the world and even throughout time. And you are building up that church through Christ. So, Lord, use us, use even the PCA to, to further that mission, to plant churches, to, to witness to students, to uh, grow our individual churches, to evangelize. Lord, build up your church, we pray, and prepare us for worship. We pray it in Christ's name.